Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Christy Thornton. Today, we're joined by Alejandro Velasco to discuss his new book, Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela, which is out in July of 2015 from the University of California Press. Alejandro is Assistant Professor of Latin American Studies at the Gallatin School at New York University, where he teaches courses in Latin American history, contemporary Latin American studies, and historical methods. He received his PhD from Duke University in 2009. In addition to his scholarly work, Alejandro has published widely on contemporary Venezuelan politics, including in the Nakla Report on the Americas and the New York Times Room for Debate. Barrio Rising, his first book, is a masterful social history of a crucial neighborhood called the 23 de Enero in Venezuela's capital of Caracas. The book traces how residents of this neighborhood came to understand and redefine the very concept of democracy over the course of three contentious decades from the late 1950s to the early 1990s. I sat down with Alejandro in his office at NYU to discuss it. Alejandro, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. So first, I know you have a particularly personal connection to the setting of this book, the urban Caracas of the late 20th century. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to study Venezuelan history generally? Yeah, the personal connection actually doesn't have a tremendous amount of um, to do with how I came to the book. Mm. But I am from Minnesota originally. Um, and in particular, the connection comes from uh, what happened in 1989 in, in Caracas, the big protest um, over a series of neoliberal, neoliberal economic reforms that happened um, under a new administration there. Um, and that protest was massively repressed. Um, it became known as the Caracas Massacre. Hundreds of people died. Many left to rotten mass graves. Um, and it was a moment that really changed sort of the trajectory of Venezuelan history. At the time, I was a teenager, so it wasn't quite um, in, my, in my radar in terms of the significance of it. And it really didn't emerge as such until I got to college. And when I got to college, I actually intended to do something else entirely. Um, but I was very fortunate to have been taken under the wing by two really brilliant historians, one, um, David Quigley, who works on U.S. history, um, and another one, Deborah Levinson, who works on Guatemala. Um, she's just a brilliant oral historian. And both of them together really sort of inspired me to think about history as something that's much more consequential than just examining the past, right? And so through that process, I started to really get into thinking about Venezuela in particular. Um, uh, but even then, when I went to graduate school, the, my focus wasn't so much on sort of examining the political history of Venezuela based around these kinds of events. I started thinking about questions of race and racism. Um, and it wasn't until I went to um, Caracas for a research project uh, finalizing my master's thesis, which is about racism in, in, in Venezuela. Um, and I got there a month after the April coup. Mm, 2002. In 2002. And um, in walking from the metro station in Capitolio, which is in downtown Caracas, to the archive, you have to go through this, uh, through Plaza Bolívar, which is the, the largest plaza, um, you know, memorials in Bolívar in Venezuela. And it was just teeming with people talking about the coup. Mm. Um, and in particular, a lot of people were 
retracing narratives about how it was that the coup um, initially ousted Chavez and then over a period of 48 hours, Chavez was reinstated. And a lot of those narratives, those popular narratives, revolved around this neighborhood, mm-hmm. which you can see from the Plaza Oliva because it's quite close. Um, and people were telling me that, you know, once folks from the Vetitresanero came down from the superblocks and the barrios and sort of cordoned off the, the presidential palace, which is also nearby, that's when things shifted. Now, that to me was extremely interesting. Mm. Um, and I started doing interviews and talking with folks about it and realized that there was a, a real project here that spoke not just about what happened in 2002, but about popular politics um, that transcends electoral politics, transcends institutional politics, transcends certain elite politics, and how those shape Venezuela in ways that had never really been discussed. So that's how it came to um, uh, to thinking about the political history of Venezuela from, from a social perspective. Right. So um, this is your first book. So big congratulations to you. This book's coming out. Um, so when you sort of discovered these people, the 23 de Enero, can you talk a little bit about the kind of research that this book required? It sounds like you did oral histories, some ethnography, what kind of documents there were. Yeah. So, um, yes, I uh, did a, an extensive amount of oral histories. Um, I lived in a neighborhood for over a year mm. uh, between 2004 and 2005. And um, the process of living there, just the fact of living there, gave me insights that um, I wouldn't have been able to, to get otherwise. Archival um, materials I got primarily through periodical sources from the 1950s to the 1990s. So did a whole review of um, newspapers in Venezuela and just trying to think about what is the place of this neighborhood in the larger narrative of Venezuelan history, um, and how does it affect the way that we um, uh, basically missed a tremendous amount of cues about the development of Venezuelan history, um, even though it was actually quite quite apparent, right? So, you know, um, in talking about the book, um, at times people ask me, well, is this more like a hidden transcripts type, you know, James mm, Scott history, right. like excavating these, these sources that never existed? And the fact is that it's not hidden transcripts. They're quite really apparent. It's just that for a variety of reasons, Venezuela after 1958, when you have a period of sort of two-part democracy rising and liberal democracy emerging, people just really weren't that interested in excavating these um, uh, these these contours, these more more popular contours. Instead, it was primarily political scientists who were worried about the party system, economists who were thinking about the, the oil economy. Um, but really, everything else was secondary, even tertiary, right? So, um, yeah, a lot of the work that went into it was sort of this threefold, living in a neighborhood and excavating sort of a kind of ethnographic imaginary about it. Um, the archival work that went into retracing where this baseball and this neighborhood is in Venezuelan history. Um, and then three, and most importantly, the oil histories I did with residents from all over the neighborhood. So I'm glad you brought up the, um, the interest of um, political scientists, sort of social scientists in these issues, because I think despite the fact that you're a historian, your book is trying to make an intervention in how we understand democracy more broadly. So one of the main contentions of your book kind of centers on the understanding of democracies that the residents of the 23 de Enero themselves construct over the course of the 30 years that you study, combining, as you write and as you've said, institutional and non-institutional, formal and informal, legal and illegal practices. So why, after having sort of reviewed what political scientists have said, the way we've understood this, why is this argument so important, and how does it change how we've understood democracy more generally in Latin America in the 20th century? Yeah. Yeah, so um, 
this this is part of the argument that goes beyond just Venezuela. Is now thinking a lot more about what democracy actually looks like on the ground, um, not just in, in Latin America, but really in, in many parts of the world. So, you know, Partha Chatterjee has this, this great book called "The Politics of the Governed," um, and he's really thinking about like when people think about lived democracy, what does it actually look like? Is it bound by institutions? Is it bound by electoral processes? And quite frequently the answer is no, right? Um, and in particular in places where there's a strong sort of, um, uh, there's a strong informal dimension to the layout of the land, to the way that people experience politics, informality comes very much in hand with the way that people think about um, politics, right? Um, and so you see this tremendously in the case of Ventidres de Nero, um, even though the original neighborhood was designed as sort of these uh, eradicating um, the informal squatter settlements that had risen up in, in Venezuela over the 19, uh, early part of the 20th century, um, and then replacing them with these, these high-rise superblocks, which was the embodiment of formalism, right, of sort of brutalist formalism. Um, over the years, new squatter settlements rose between the superblocks. So this is a perfect sort of physical embodiment of the formal and the informal, which was then also expressed in the ways that people understood the relationship to the political system. They participated in elections, of course, and this was seen as sort of the way that we formally participate in the political system. But very frequently, they transcended elections, right? Um, and they protested heavily as a way of thinking about how to gain um, access to the political system outside of those formal institutions, right? Um, and this is actually, the, the bigger argument is that this isn't something that is anomalous to the way that we think about democracy. It's certainly not something that's extraneous, which is usually how political science understands things like protest, right? Mm. So if you think about sort of, you know, democracy understood in classical terms, especially liberal democracy, protest is anathema, right? More protest means that the institutions of democracy are failing. Less protest means that they're they're strengthening. Um, and instead, what we see is both can actually coexist in ways that um, allow for, in fact, require democracy to be vibrant, right? Um, and this is what happened in the Ventitres de Nero, and this is what happens elsewhere in places in Latin America and the world where you have these kind of informal and formal uh, practices coinciding. So one of the things, you made these broader points about um, Latin America, but there is something very particular to the story that you're telling. One of the interesting points that you make in introducing the book is that unlike studies that focus on slums and informal settlements, in poor neighborhoods in other Latin American cities, the residents of the 23 Enero are not geographically marginal. They are, in fact, in the very center of the city, very near to the center of power, the Miraflores presidential palace. And in that way, they're very visible. So this centrality means, you argue, that your history is not just a history of a barrio, but of a nation. So how do these actors that you study illuminate the broader history of Venezuela? Yeah. So this, I've gotten into trouble with this <laughs> sometimes, right, because um, on the one hand, the centrality, both the physical and the symbolic centrality of the Senado, suggests that um, it's possible to examine its history um, as a um, as a standard for the history of Venezuela, the one that I'm trying to tell, which is a more popular history. On the other hand, I want to be careful not to make the point that this is representative, Right? It's, it's an exceptional neighborhood, precisely because of these central, um, centralizing features, either symbolic or, or spatial. Um, so the kind of resonance that the neighborhood has um, speaks very broadly to the larger 
larger trajectory of Venezuelan history, but not because of it is the experience of the neighborhood the same as the experience of other popular sectors elsewhere in Venezuela, right? So it's kind of a strange paradox, right? It can tell us about um, the history of Venezuela, but not in a representative way um, about the rest of, of, of popular sectors in the country. Um, but the way that it tells us about Venezuelan history um, is... As I was alluding to before, it's a history that when it's understood precisely as this combination, as a counterpoint, as I talk about it in the book, as a counterpoint between this formal and informal, this legal and illegal, um, uh, these illegal and illegal practices, it completely upends the way that we think about what is normal in Venezuelan politics, um, especially when it's seen and refracted through the lens of popular sectors, right? So, um, uh, yeah, this this through this interplay, this counterpoint between the formal and the informal, is very much a feature of the Interdesenado that we can extrapolate more broadly. But the centrality of it is very much unique to the neighborhood itself. I'll just give you an example. So, you know, when I interview um, uh, activists in Interesanero, they tell me how they go to other parts of Caracas or other parts of Venezuela. Um, they are sometimes uh, embarrassed by the reputation that the Interesanero mm. has elsewhere in Caracas, elsewhere in Venezuela. And they find themselves a lot of times downplaying the effect, right, because people sort of have a, a very lofty, especially activists, uh, popular activists have a very lofty vision of the Interesanero, which, you know, to some to some extent can um, lead itself to mythologizing. Right? Mm. To, to a large extent, the book is trying to do away with some of that mythologizing, especially that has emerged under the Chavez period, where the Interesanero is sort of seen as the you know, the paragon of, of radical socialism. And in fact, it's a much more riven, complex terrain, both politically and, um, and spatially, right? So in a, in a variety of ways, I think the, 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 the most significant way in which the, the centrality of the neighborhood really sort of speaks to what is um, a different kind of narrative of Venezuelan history is that it makes that history far more complex than it had been before. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the history of the housing project itself and the development of the neighborhood. It was, as you said, conceived and built under the dictatorship of um, Marco Perez Jimenez, but really sort of founded and filled with occupants once he was overthrown, right, on the 23rd of January, 1958, giving its, its name, the 23 de Enero. So how did Perez Jimenez see this project and how did the residents redefine it after he was deposed? Yeah, well, um, uh it's interesting there because basically it's true that um, a vast sector of the neighborhood was um, was occupied, right, um, after uh, Marcos Pérez Jiménez was, was overthrown on January 23rd, 1958. But actually, that was only about half of the neighborhood. Half of the neighborhood had already been adjudicated and people had been living there for up to two years, right? And why this is significant is because it completely reconfigures the social landscape, right? So there's an entire, again, so we're thinking about the exceptionalist nature of this um, of this, of this, pro, of this neighborhood. Um, half of the neighborhood was, uh, was you know, informally occupied, formally adjudicated under Pérez Jiménez, and then half of it was informally occupied mm. after he fell, right? So it creates a very sort of riven kind of social landscape, which eventually is going to have repercussions in terms of how people imagine their relationship to, um, to the political regimes that follow. But the project itself, yes, it's the brainchild of Marcos Perez Jimenez who came to power um, 
in, um, in, in 1948, but establishes dictatorial rule on um, December 2nd of 1952. And he had this vision for transforming Venezuela into a modern nation by, um, uh, by basically building the hardware of modernity, right? So building modernist um, structures that would showcase his modernizing zeal. Um, and the 2nd of December, that date that he consolidated his rule in 1952, became a, a very symbolic date. So much so that this housing project, which for him was going to replace all slums in Caracas, all throughout Caracas, um, was inaugurated on December 2nd of 1955, the first stage of it, and then it was named December 2nd, right? So already, even before the name that it currently carries, it already had a tremendously um, charged symbolic meaning. It was also located right in downtown Caracas, literally a stone's throw away from the presidential palace, the capital, the, what at the time was the defense ministry, right? So it was seen to be a symbolic um, centralization of popular sector's presence in this regime, in this new modern Venezuela. Um, so yeah, it was, it was certainly part of the, the larger sort of political vision of Venezuelanismo, um, but that also came with a very strong authoritarian um, bent, and so people were forcibly moved from their um, from their homes. It, there was no distinction between what the regime saw as slums and what um, were actually long established informal settlements. Um, for it was the, the period was known as the bulldozer years, and rightly so people's testimonies of the period, it was quite searing. Even 50 years afterwards, the, the memory of the day in which they left, they were forced to leave their homes. It's so deeply embedded in their minds. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the bulldozer would show up, they would be forced to move all their belongings into, um, into a truck that would then transport them, and then they would see the bulldozer come in and then, you know, bulldoze their houses. Um, and that, of course, created very mixed emotions in terms of how people then related to the new um, to the new buildings. In some cases, there was a tremendous amount of gratitude. It was a huge move up. In some cases, it was a huge move down, right? And so um, that affected the way that people related to the to the Venezuelan regime. So um, there's an interesting moment in your book where Richard Nixon makes an appearance, his infamous visit to Caracas. Uh, in 1958. So can you tell us a little bit about how the residents of this neighborhood, the 23 de Enero, were involved at that point and sort of what the impact of this Nixon visit is? Yeah. So Nixon visited um, Latin America on a goodwill tour um, in in the middle of 1959, in 1958. Um, Perez Jimenez had been overthrown a few months before. Um, and throughout the various stops in uh, in Nixon's visit, he had already confronted uh, very angry crowds. Um, and Venezuela was the last stop. Caracas was the last stop in his tour. Um, he had been coming there from Peru, where he also was subjected to all sorts of, you know, um, to, you know crowds of, um, protesting his presence. But Venezuela was really seen as a place where the protests were probably going to be larger and far more ferocious. And the reason why was because Pérez Jiménez had very strong links to um, the Eisenhower administration. In fact, the Eisenhower administration had granted Pérez Jiménez with the Order of Freedom. Um, the OAS meeting in which 
um, the OS refused to recognize the Arbenz um, coup in 1954 as a coup happening in Caracas under the tutelage of Marcos Pérez Jiménez. Um, so there were very strong links um, between uh, between the Eisenhower government and, um, and, and, and Pérez Jiménez. And so when Nixon showed up, um, very quickly his motorcade was pelted. There are wonderful narratives of this in, in Time magazine from, from that weekend uh, story about people spit with sort of tra- the trajectory of the art descending on Nixon and his wife Pat and you know, the rest of it, which is really interesting. That visit lasted only a day. The next morning he was gone. But the first person that was arrested in conjunction with the um, the Nixon protest was somebody who in the 23 Senero, the new neighborhood, had become known as the little dictator of the 23 Senero. In the chaos that was the days after the takeover of these buildings, several of the sectors um, self-organized. Um, and this one person, this um, <laughs> he had all sorts of pseudonyms. The other one was... El hombre de la chaqueta negra, the man with the you know, black jacket, because apparently he always wore a black jacket. Um, but he organized part of the neighborhood. Um, and then he was rumored to have had some sort of ties with Pérez Jiménez. Then he was rumored to have ties with communists. It became sort of this larger-than-life figure. But the protests, which were strongest when he was going by the 23 Senero, were then seen to have been organized. And, of course, this was the image of, of Nixon, that it was communists. Communists, this. obviously, it was communists. And so they just needed a scapegoat. And this person became the person that they wanted to pin it on. Right? Eventually, it was released. There was no evidence or, or whatever have you. But the fact that it was that the strongest protest came while he was riding through the 23 Senero, um, and that the state, the government, the transitional government saw itself in the position of having to arrest somebody from this neighborhood, which otherwise had, you know, gotten the name, the symbolic charge of the Senero, already kind of created these tense um, moments between residents and the, the new authorities. So later in the 1960s, there emerged uh, in Venezuela an armed guerrilla movement, elements of which were centered in the 23 Enero, I understand, um, where even Fidel Castro pays a visit in January of 1959, just after the triumph of the revolution in Havana, right? So can you describe how this urban insurgency changed politics and affected the practices of democracy within the 23 Enero in this neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah, so Nixon showed up in 1958, <laughs> and then three weeks after um, Castro triumphantly enters Havana, he shows up in the 23 de Enero. Um, and what was interesting about it was, well, number one, Venezuela was the first stop that Castro made after, um, after the revolution. But it was actually a resident-driven um, uh, invitation. So residents of the 23 de Enero formally invited Castro to come to Caracas. And once he was there, once he showed up early um, uh, in, in January of 1959, one of the sectors of the neighborhood which had been built in the interim period between 1958 and 1959, after Pérez Jiménez was overthrown, but before Castro's visit, it was renamed, it was named actually Sierra Maestra, after the, the mountain stronghold where um, Castro's guerrillas um, staged their, um, their revolution. So there were all sorts of very strong, um, uh, radical, at least sort of at the time, they were perceived as radical political tendencies. There was a tremendous amount of, um, uh, of dissolution, um, especially in parts of the 23 Enero, 
for what had been the elections, the first elections after the, the coup of, of January 23rd, 1958, when Roman Kurt is elected. And he's elected with a broad margin nationally, but he in fact loses very badly in Caracas um, to who had been the interim leader, Wilkan Arasala, between 1958 and 19, um, 1959. And Arasala had run under a Communist Party ticket. Um, uh, and he lost nationally, but in Caracas, and especially in Tresinero, he, he won by a landslide, right? So there's a lot of talks, and there was a talk, there was talk of a fraud that had happened, um, the protests happened right after the election, and the people were demanding uh, a recount, um, and eventually actually took La Rosala to say, no, the, fraud, the, the vote was clean, um, but then we won, we all have to come together, right? So... There's already a sense of disillusionment um, with the elections and what had transpired. Um, and over the years, the first couple of years of the Betancourt government, that disillusionment, especially um, as Betancourt became closer and closer tied to, um, to the United States mm. for oil interests, um, for oil interest reasons, and also especially as Castro and in Cuba became you know, further and further apart from, from the United States, um, that sense of a schism that had emerged already in the late um, 1958 period of the elections really manifested itself and split up into a guerrilla war. Um, what was interesting is that the first stages of that guerrilla war were actually quite effective, and they happened precisely in these urban areas. One of the things to remember is that Venezuela, even at the time, was one of the most urbanized countries in Latin America. It currently is the most um, highly urban country in Latin America. Um, and so the kind of strategies that guerrillas had used in places like Cuba had to be completely readapted to fit a different reality, different sort of spatial reality. And they were quite effective, actually, in the beginning parts of the, um, the guerrilla insurgency in the early 1960s. But not so much because they were effective at gaining their, um, their objectives. They were effective because they, were, they forced the government into responding in patterns of generalized repression, and none more so than in the 23 de enero. So, number one, the 23 de enero had a strategic sort of importance. Again, it overlooked the presidential palace, it overlooked the defense ministry. Um, but then that also forced the government to repress the entire neighborhood with very, you know, um, not just in terms of firepower, but invading sort of entire super blocks with national guardsmen and army. Again, people's memories are seared in their minds, these, uh, these moments of repression. And then, of course, that just furthers the split between the government and the people of this neighborhood. Um, on the other hand, the guerrillas were also um, uh, not particularly attuned to the needs of residents. So as this guerrilla warfare intensified and grew longer, they also created a distance between themselves and the residents of the neighborhood. Right? So neighborhoods were sort of caught between you know, the repression of the state and then the lack of attention by the guerrillas to, to their needs. Um, and then the guerrillas made a, a horribly sort of strategically... Um, uh, uh, ill-fated um, choice, which was to leave the cities and go to the countryside where there was no one, um, and they lost any kind of strategic advance that they had. Um, and so that's the moment in the mid-1960s, late-1960s, when you start to see a bit of a return of the population towards the idea of liberal democracy. Um, but yeah, during those early periods of the 1960s, as one of my um, informants talks about, as she said, the fight was fierce. Right, and it really was. In the 1970s, then, with the defeat of the guerrilla movement, um, organizing in the neighborhood, you write, becomes more focused on local needs, on how you describe the guerrilla sort of ignoring the needs of the population. Um, and, for example, you have women leading protests about the lack of access to water in the neighborhood. Um, and 
in some ways, this could be seen as a kind of depoliticization from the prior moment of insurgency. The protesters, you write, were no longer partisan insurgents, but instead residents seeking services. So what was the state's response to this new kind of protest and how did it change what was happening in the neighborhood? So you start to see this in the in the later stages of the 1960s, 1969 in particular. Um, there's a very consequential election. Um, it's the first time that an opposition party was elected and then um, uh, there's a transfer of power from this nominally center-left Democratica to this nominally center-right Social Christian Cope Party. Um, and so there was there was a sense that not only had the guerrillas been defeated, but one of the first moves of the of the Cope government was to enact the pacification plan that allowed guerrillas to come down from the mountains, create a political party, which eventually coalesced into something called mass movimiento socialismo. In the neighborhood itself, though, what this provided was an opportunity to express long, silent grievances that were completely left aside during the period of both guerrilla war and then the repression that happened. Um, this also, of course, coincided with a period of significant amount of um, infusion of cash because of the petrodollars um, that came in after the 1973 oil embargo. Um, and you know, this, this sort of came at a moment when the state was, again, sort of envisioning a particular kind of grandiose modernity, but at the same time it was coming, at least on the local level, with a tremendous amount of stacked-up grievances. If you think about, um, just to give you an example, um, this, this is going to come up later, but uh, later in the book, but to think about just very basic infrastructure needs of a neighborhood that is comprised of, you know, 56 superblocks, the largest one of which has 520 apartments. Just think about one of those superblocks with 150 apartments. If trash isn't picked up, you know, for a week, you know, it's, you can sort of extrapolate what that would mean, right? Think about trash not being picked up for three weeks or, 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 or a month or even longer, right? Think about everything that could go wrong during that period. So what happened in the 1960s, not only was there guerrilla war, not only was there repression, but there was also a very significant lack of attention to basic infrastructure in the neighborhood. And that had to do with a couple of factors. Number one, the new regime, the new authorities, it very felt, it felt very much burdened by this housing project that it hadn't really wanted, but now it had this name, and so it felt like it had to do something. And then on the other hand, it became this guerrilla hotbed, and so even less it wanted to invest in it, right? So there's a, you know, 10 years of accumulated grievances, which then all had to be solved in the 1970s, but of course, they couldn't be solved. There wasn't enough resources, number one. And number two, again, the attention of the state was somewhere else entirely. It wanted to modernize elsewhere. It didn't want to try to deal with things that were already there and sort of crumbling. And so this is what lead, gives rise to these protests. Um, the first few protests are actually responded to very quickly by the government. They're all stopgap measures. They become much more radical and they intensify in the mid-1970s when students come in mm -hmm. um, and they sort of are thinking about not just questions of local needs, needs for schools, needs for transportation, etc. They now begin to link their demands and their grievances to broader critiques of the political system, right? And so what you have is this sort of emerging schism between, on one hand, you have you know, protesters, you know, women and children and others who take to the streets in very sometimes violent ways. They do roadblocks um, to demand the, the satisfaction of their grievances that had long been pending. And then you have this upsurge of 
young student radicals who are demanding not just these local grievances, but also an overhaul of the larger political system, right? Those, that's the sort of tension that emerges in the 1970s. And how do those two relate to one another? Are they are the students kind of outsiders? Or are they part of the neighborhood? What's the political dynamic there between those two? No, they're very much part of the neighborhood. And in fact, this, um, this later will emerge into a really significant kind of sociological phenomenon. So um, the, there is one high school in the Vente de Sanero, the Fajardo High School, and even though there are multiple high schools and there's a couple of middle schools, all residents of the neighborhood that go to high school, they combine in this one place. And so even though this, the, the neighborhood itself is sort of split up into various sections, not only in terms of superblocks, the eastern half, which is the one that was adjudicated under Perez Jimenez, the western half, which was occupied, then you have all the various barrios that emerged during the 1960s and 1970s. They all meet in this place, right? And so this 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 uh, this serves as a central repository for political organizing for youth radicals um, in in uh, in the 23 Senado. So certainly there they they get their sort of politics um, not just from the failed experience of the guerrilla movement, but they're getting their politics also from what they hear their parents in terms of their frustrations with the political regime, right? Um, and so what you have is not so much a, a, a distancing, you have a distancing that comes in terms of the tactical, you know, sort of tactical choices. Students are very much more confrontational than are their parents. Um, and their parents, when they say, you know, you shouldn't go out to protest, they do so far more in terms of, you know, don't get your ass beat rather than, um, uh, yeah, I disagree with what you're doing. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, of solidarity within those two groups. It's just that it was manifested differently in terms of their tactical repertoire. And what sort of um, victories do they win? Or is, it, is there a defeat in this moment? Or are they able to actually secure services and, and um, get some of their grievances actually satisfied in this time? Yeah, there are certainly small-scale victories, right? Um, so, you know, when there were water protests, um, uh, they were able to, you know, get the, the water service to reinstate service. Um, they also were able to get some overhauls of certain super blocks um, uh, when those were needed, elevator services, et cetera, et cetera. Students were able to get um, resources for their schools. They were able to get uh, um, a... Um, uh, uh, a youth center um, created, which had been um, sort of left there for, for a long time. So there were certainly small victories, right? But none were enough to really satisfy the demands that had been accumulating for over a decade. Um, and that just created this increasing move towards protests, which then Towards the late 1970s, you find the state moving into a much more of a repressive mold. And you have upwards of 12 students who are killed in the Vintitresanero over the late mid to late 1970s. Um, you have other youth who are killed in protests as well. Right? So this serves as, as sort of a, 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 these kind of instances served as a, as a unifier between these two sectors of the population that otherwise had some tactical differences, but their major grievances were underlyingly the same. 
And so um, as you move from the late 1970s into the early 1980s, you see kind of new dramatic protest tactics emerging, um, especially you write about these instances, I think, in 81 and 82 with the hijacking of garbage trucks and other kinds of public service vehicles. And in this way, they, they, these kind of more radical protests combine the, the guerrilla tactics of the previous moment with some of these sort of needs, provision, service-oriented things. So um, can you talk, tell us about these hijackings, what happened and what the result of them was? So I was telling you before about just the effect of trash going on picked uncollected. And this is what happened. Um, but it, uh, on the surface, it seemed very similar to what had happened before, but then everything changed, not only in terms of how, um, how people responded, but also how the state responded. So a new government was elected in the late 1970s, again, a Copay government. But the president, Misereta Campines, who, who was the winning candidate, he made a big um, emphasis on his campaign to reform, to refound the democracy that was founded in 1958. And he would do so far more along participatory lines rather than representative lines. So he talked a lot about participatory as opposed to representative democracy. Now, at the moment when he sort of was talking about this, there wasn't real much sense of how this is going to tra- translate into local level politics. And the hijackings, to some extent, really become the first instance of seeing folks on the ground appropriating a discourse that was coming from elite political sectors and then really using it for their advantage, right? And so the way that this happened, even though the proximate causes of the hijackings were these, um, you know, the, the trash that was gone on collected for weeks and weeks, the more significant effect of it was to really link up which had been a political, what had been a political discourse about reforming democracy, making it more participatory. And now these residents who were saying, great, we're going to participate in politics just as you're telling us to do by holding you accountable to the promises that you're making, right? And one of the promises that you're making is that public services are going to work better. Clearly they're not, so we're going to you know, participate in this, um, in this process. Um, and the way that we're going to do that is by being very aggressive, right? And so here's where the youth come in, the youth who are... Um, far more sort of infused with this radical undercurrent. Um, some of them have been trained by, not just ideologically, but also tactically by some of the veterans of the guerrilla war in the 1960s. Um, and so they took over several uh, trash trucks that had been driving by. Um, they hijacked them. They moved them into the super blocks. They later hijacked other strategically important um, uh, vehicles, like, for instance, a... Um, a newspaper delivery vehicle to make sure that newspapers would have to report on the story, um, and a series of other public service vehicles. Um, and this protest lasted for over a month, which was significant, and it captured the attention not just of the local press, uh, or I mean the, the city press, but really the national press. And people elsewhere in Venezuela started to talk, started talking about we need to protest like they do in the 23 de enero in order to get anything done, right? Um, and in part because they understood the power that um, was embedded in the idea of drawing on a discourse of participatory politics while at the same time resorting to these illegal tactics and then forcing the government into a position where its preferred response, which would have been repression, even though the protest was illegal, it really couldn't do that. And so the way that the government responded, it was really quite dramatic, Lucereta Campines, who had actually campaigned significantly in the Senate itself. Um, There's a huge headline in, 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 the, in the papers um, around midway through the protest saying, you know, he furiously chastises the heads of the public services for not, you know, fulfilling their promises, and he orders a huge overhaul, not just of these sort of peaceful sectors of the neighborhood, but the entire sector, the entire neighborhood. 
um, uh, allocates you know, millions and millions of dollars for, for this project. And eventually, sort of um, passes uh, in, in in really uh, symbolic, in a significant way, um, and so this becomes a really tremendous victory. Um, not just a victory for the Veintitres Enero, but a victory for thinking about democracy in a far more um, uh, porous way, in a far more comprehensive way, one that actually combines the formalism of elite political culture and what it was trying to do in Venezuela in terms of instantiating institutionalism, and then the informal political culture of neighborhoods um, like the Tres Enero, who understood that it's the streets and the institutions where politics really happens. So um, the final chapter of your book, of course, examines... um, what happens after this, the dramatic events of the Caracaso, the 1989 protest and massacre. Um, you write that the Caracaso, in addition to being a massacre of people in the streets, was a massacre of expectations. So can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So it's interesting. So as I was mentioning before, the Caracaso holds a very prominent place in the way that people think about the trajectory of Venezuelan politics and certainly of Venezuelan um, democracy after 1958. Most people understand that as a moment when a social pact breaks down between um, elites and popular sectors, right? Um, And people have in the past talked about it as a rupture of these kind of expectations of what the state should do versus how populists should respond, etc. But the way that I'm thinking about expectations is actually quite different. Um, and it's not so much expectations about you know, what a state should do, but rather expectations about how elastic democracy had become over the period, the preceding 30 years, right? And so, for instance, the hijackings become a really significant moment of thinking much more elastically about democracy, thinking about it much more as an interplay between these formal and informal structures. Um, the, the, when I was interviewing people about the, the Caracaso, one in particular, um, she really sort of attuned me to this um, in, in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. Um, her name is Emilia Perez. Um, she lived in, in, a, in a she lives in a uh, in a superblock that um, uh, she was moved under Perez and Mene. No, she she was. She was one of the people who occupied build, uh, apartments after 1958. Um, uh, so she you know, forcibly occupied her apartment. She saw Fidel Castro as he was uh, going by. She saw Nixon's motorcade. Um, she saw in the 1960s with the you know, urban guerrillas taking over the, the building. She saw the repression. Um, she saw all these protests because she also overlooked the, the high school where there's a lot of protests. She was a, a, a front seat witness to these tremendous episodes in Venezuelan history. And when I asked her about the Caracaso, um, and in particular I asked her about one of the buildings nearby which had been completely peppered with 50 caliber bullets by the military which stationed itself around the building, um, I asked her, you know, what, what, what did you think about that? And she said, what, what, do you, what do you expect me to think? I think it was unfair. And it caught me off guard that her word was unfair. Right? I would have thought many other words would have come to mind. But she used the word unfair, so I pressed her on it. She said, well, they just had guns. They had machine guns, right? We had these kinds of armaments, and they had those kinds of armaments. So there's a question, there's an issue there about like what was a proportional response, right? Of course, if you're going to protest, as we long have, we're going to expect some sort of response from the state, right? The problem here was that the expectations that were set in terms of what actually can be and should be repressed and by whom and in, in, under what context, that was broken up, right? So the elasticity of democracy, that's what was ruptured. 
right? the expectations that people in the Vente Trestenero had about, well, of course we're going to protest. This is just what we've done. This is who we are. And sure, we're going to expect some sort of repressive response, but military in the streets, 50 caliber machine guns peppering walls of these super blocks that you know, didn't even crack under the earthquake of 1967. Um, you know, bodies laid on the ground for hours and then for days because there were curfew and people didn't want to like, leave to even cover them up. This was unheard of, right? And so the, the, the expectations that were broken up weren't so much about sort of what the state's responsibility is to the, to the electorate. It was about how states should respond to protests of populations that have long protested, right? Those were the expectations that were ruptured. And they create you know, a different sense of you know, what can be possible in a future administration. Right. And so, of course, um, that's 1989. Um, the figure of Hugo Chavez sort of looms large over much of your book. And, of course, the period in which you were doing the research and the writing of the book um, happened during much of his time in power. Um, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you understand the events that you trace here as they relate to the rise of Chavismo and the Bolivarian Revolution um, and what sort of how you mentioned in the beginning the way in which the 23 de Enero sort of comes to be seen in the era of Chavez. So I wonder um, how much you think that myth-making is just that, myth-making, and sort of what the Chavez era does to impact this neighborhood. Yeah. So a lot of the arguments, so there's basically two arguments as they relate to, to Venezuela, Venezuelan history. The first argument is is, is against the petrostate logic, sort of the petrostate narrative, which is all about sort of the, the solidity of institutions, the solidity of the party system, and then collapses and then gives rise to something else. Um, and the argument there is that, in fact, it wasn't quite as solid as people understood it. It was far more permeable, it was far more malleable, it was far more elastic. Um, another argument that I make, which is what we talked about um, before, was once you think about democracy in these more elastic ways, then you start thinking about the interplay of the formal and the informal, right? And so this is the way that we should think about democracy, not as um, not informality, not as something that's extraneous to the way that we think about democracy, but as something that's integral to it. But the third argument, and this is the third intervention, is um, an emerging historiography of Chavismo, right? And the historiography of Chavismo, it's emerging very much sort of um, glorifies not just the Caracaso in 1989, um, but really popular pol you know, political participation in the period preceding, um, preceding Chavez's rise to power um, in ways that, at least as I was hearing and talking to people between 2004 and 2005, didn't always gel very well. In fact, you know, um, I, I felt sometimes that, that, that when I was interviewing folks that um, that I would have to push them to sort of embody the kind of narratives that were coming from Chavez about, especially the 23 de Enero, sort of this bastion of the revolution, this stronghold of radicalism, the birthplace of Venezuelan socialism, et cetera, et cetera. And I would ask them about it. They're like, I, I never talked about socialism before in my life. Um, I don't know what you mean. Um, I can tell you all about the ways that I think politics should happen, if that's socialist, then great, right? But if not, then we have to think about some other terms. Um, uh, and so, you know, thinking about it in, in those much more sort of gray tones um, really alerted me to this emerging historiography that was chafing against what I was hearing on the ground. And so what the history of the Veinte Tres Enero tells me is that um, 
thinking about, especially the sort of the latter stages of Chavismo, and I'm talking here about um, after 2005, especially after 2006, when you know the Socialist Party, the United Socialist Party, um, the Chavez Crisis, United Socialist Party, um, when the, the the discourse of socialism in the 21st century becomes very very strong, trying to link that to this pre-existing history is actually not quite as strong a fit as one would imagine, right? What people wanted in the Interesenero throughout this history was a democracy that was far more participatory than the representative democracy that was installed, that was far more responsive, and that allowed for that kind of elastic engagement that wasn't just restricted to formal institutions. They very much saw that in the first years of Chavismo. They saw that in um, the appeal to transcend institutions, to create local organizing um, groups, to create um, urban land committees, right, um, which move beyond the existing ministries to, um, to, um, to secure land rights for, for properties, uh, you know, for, for housing and whatnot. Um, in, uh, in, in tactical, uh, in technical water committees, again, sort of speaking to these long-stemming grievances about water supply, right? And so this, this sort of push towards local organizing and grassroots organizing, that was very much a part of what residents wanted. But then when it was overlaid with a much sort of stronger discourse about socialism, it wasn't a surprise to me that it didn't gel quite as um, quite as closely as it had before, right? So again, that the different historiography that sort of says that Venezuelan popular history is leading towards the rise of socialism of the twenty first century, um, that's not supported by the history of the folks in the Ventitres Enero who organize for better, more participatory more engaged, more elastic democracy, but that nevertheless still wanted that kind of um, uh, sense of some formal formalism um, that the preceding governments provided them. I think to a lot of people that would seem surprising, right? It should seem as though the kinds of organizing that you're talking about, having had this long legacy there, um, would seem as though they come to their culmination in the Chavez moment. So I, I wonder, after... The death of Chavez. I don't know if you've been back very recently, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the post-Chavez moment is being viewed in the 23 de Enero, sort of what what this neighborhood looks like now and how it's participating in politics in a contemporary way. Huge frustration. Mm. Um, and it's it's a frustration that is long-stemming in the Chavez era, and I'll just give you an example. So in the conclusion of the book, I talk about this... Um, these primary elections that happened in the 23 de Enero in 2005, and these were right um, before uh, um, local elections, which were going to happen nationwide. So electing things like aldermen, um, city council, etc. Um, Chavez had imposed candidates for the local elections, um, and people in the 23 de Enero rebelled. They said, we don't support these candidates. They don't come from our neighborhood. Um, why have we been struggling all this time for you know a, a voice if now you're telling us who we have to impose? So they organized as they long had um, these uh, into these uh, these primary elections, and then from that came a slate of candidates. And when the mayor was elected, the mayor then tried to impose the, the mayor who had been appointed by Chavez as a candidate. The mayor tried to impose a local jefe civil, and then they rebelled again and said, this is not the guy we want, we want another one. And then they put in their own guy, right? Um, and so all of these measures suggested that even, you know, 
2004, 2005, already there were very strong uh, instances of dissatisfaction with the way in which a certain kind of top-down um, socialist or whatever, Chavista sort of politics was engaging with the Interestanero despite and perhaps because of all this mythologizing that was happening, right? Um, and so that kind of frustration has been there for a long time, which has always, to me, been... Um, kind of difficult to talk about in, in the U.S. context because there's always this expectation on the one hand if you know, if folks are in the opposition, like everyone supports Chavismo blindly, right? It's like, well, actually, my experience is quite the opposite. These people call themselves Chavista, they vote for Chavez, but man, they will not lose an opportunity to say this is not working, you know, in all these sorts of ways, right? And on the other hand, from folks who support the larger Chavista project, they say, well, you know, how can this be? We thought that folks were always sort of in support of the, of, of, not, not blindly at least, but critically, right, the sort of building from the ground up, um, which is true to an extent, but again, that's, that's not in, that doesn't always come in parallel, but sometimes in opposition to what's happening in the, in the larger government. So both of these, again, are, are kind of examples that suggest this larger pattern, at least point to this larger pattern that I was talking about before. The neighborhood, to some extent, because it's exceptional, both symbolically and spatially, can and does show evidence of these sort of contrarian oppositional currents, regardless of who's in power, whether it was Chavez or before that, right? Um, and that also the reason why it really can't replicate itself elsewhere in the country. Right? So the kinds of instances of oppositional politics that have long marked you know, life in the Interesanero are very much unique to this neighborhood, but at the same time they tell something that is far more riven about the trajectory of Venezuelan politics in the second half of the 20th century and now leading into the first uh, few decades of the 21st century. That's really interesting. Um... I want to close by asking you about actually what's in the preface of your book, which is the story that um, people listening will have heard here because it made such a big splash, and that is the coverage of the Tower of David, the Torre de David. Um, and so maybe you can explain to our listeners um, what this Tower of David is, uh, how it came to be seen here in the U.S., and sort of um, how you think the history that you've told of the political, the, the takeover and the subsequent political action in the 23 de Enero might change how we think about this Tower of David story. Yeah, this is great. Um, so, so at first I was actually wasn't going to include the Torre David, but then my, my editor, Kate Marshall at UC Press, just like, you have to include it. <laughs> and then as I thought about it much more, it made perfect sense. And in fact, it tied the together in a very powerful way. So the Tower of David was um, a, um, a financial, um, it was built in the mid-1950s, or the, 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 the effort was, was in the mid-1990s, I'm sorry, mid-1990s, what am I saying, um, to basically be the financial center of Caracas, which was then going to be the Wall Street of Latin America. This was a period of um, neoliberal bonanza, uh, tremendous amount of deregulation was happening in Venezuela during this time. Financing stopped short when there was a banking crisis and the tower was left unfinished. Um, and it basically remained both unfinished and un uninhabited and occupied for 10 years until 2007, when um, after a period of, um, of promises for new housing from the Chavez government, about um, uh, 100 uh, families took over invaded the, the sector, and then they, they took over the tower. Um, over the years, over 3,000 people came to live in the Tower of David. It was called the Tower of David because the, the financier was named David Berlinburg. Um, 
and so this this was seen by some as sort of a, a really radical example of um, uh, of of informal in uh, of informal housing entrepreneurship of informal innovation and the rest of it. But then by others, it was seen as this den of crime. Johnny Anderson and the New Yorker wrote um, that Caracas is a failed city and the Tower of David is the ultimate example of that failure, right? Which, of course, betrays certain kind of sense of what success and failure. Um, and, you know, Homeland, the U.S. television series, then portrayed it as this den of terrorists where police that, you know, wouldn't enter and the rest of it, right? So it had a very sort of contradictory place. Um, and it became sort of a stand-in for either everything that was potentially positive about the Venezuelan revolution, the Bolivarian revolution, or everything that was obviously wrong with the Venezuelan revolution. Um, and then, of course, to me, what was fascinating was not so much what was happening in the tower and the stories around it. What was fascinating is that nobody was talking about the obvious, which is that this has happened before. Not elsewhere in Latin America, not elsewhere in the world, here in Caracas just about a mile and a half away. You can see the Tower of David from the rooftops of some of the superblocks in the 23 Enero. And it hadn't just happened. It happened a hundredfold. 3,000 families occupied, or 3,000 people occupied the Tower of David. In the 23 Enero, it was 3,000 apartments, right? So the number of people that occupied in two days' time, it was 20,000 people, right? Um, and in very similar circumstances, a, a, a housing project that had been built by one regime, then it hadn't been sort of inherited by another regime that didn't know really what to do with it. Same thing with the Tower of David, right? One, it was built under one regime and then another political system trying to figure out what to do with this and the people they're in. Um, and so again, in both instances, what you have is sort of this kind of, um, this kind of, on the one hand, an amnesia that the Tower of David suggests about how we miss these other moments in Venezuelan history. But then the other part of the amnesia, um, which is what I talk about in the, in the preface, is hysteria. Right, so amnesia is a marker of the absence of history. Um, and in the absence of history, then what's left is hysteria. And these dramatic, completely contradictory images of the Tower of David were also part of the way that people imagined the Vente Tresenen, right? And so you know, this, this speaks to a larger dynamic of Venezuelan history, but also you know, history more broadly. In its absence, then hysteria reigns. Um, and to, you know, to a large extent, the book is trying to do away with both, right? trying to do away with the historical amnesia that is really settled into Venezuela, and then also hopefully do a little bit away with the hysteria that is the consequence of that amnesia. The book is Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela, out July 2015 from the University of California Press, and we have been speaking to its author, Alejandro Velasco. Alejandro, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been great. I'm Christy Thornton. This has been New Books in Latin American Studies. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.